But uh, let's go ahead and get started here this evening with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into this uh, very sober portion of Scripture um, that the Lord gives. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God that uh, gives us warning, that uh, you're not just uh, merely allowing us to go through life and and uh, be ignorant about certain things. And the heart of the Savior was to make people aware of the eternal destruction that they were being sent to by their own uh, selfishness and sin. And uh, may we uh, understand this passage. It's one that can have impact on individuals and their understanding of eternity. And uh, may we uh, also be sobered by it. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 16, we want to remind you that two weeks ago we had uh, nothing last week because of the week of Bible school, but that this, oh, the, the parable that we looked at last week or two weeks ago about the unjust steward, or I called him the shrewd steward, and this one, and I'm calling it not the parable, but the story of the rich man Lazarus, are connected. The first one in this is given to disciples. Okay, it very clearly says that in verse number one where it says, uh, the, uh, and he said unto his disciples, and he gives a parable. We get to verse 14, and you find that he's talking directly to the Pharisees. So you have a parable that's to believers, Christians as we might say, but then you have a, a story that is given to warn sinners, unsaved people, which it's kind of ironic because you figure the Pharisees are the ones who are going to make it if you were in that culture. Uh, and it's a story to tell them they're probably not going to uh, if they are anything like the rich man in the story. So in the previous context, you have the, par- the, the, the paragraph there, Jesus had told the parable the shrewd steward who thought ahead. Remember, he's not the most noble of individuals, and you're like, well, why would Jesus commend an individual like that? Because he thought ahead with his possessions and his goods that he was responsible for. He was a steward. And uh, so he used goods for his future benefit. Okay, the blank there is future, uh, as you have it. But he's thinking ahead and going, what will benefit me? Uh, I'm about to get fired. Oh, you know what? I'll lower the debts that these individuals have, and then they'll be my friend later. And so he's thinking ahead. And the parable in the midst of this, in verse 8, it says this, that the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Sometimes, and you know, it sounds almost unsanctified, uh, but sometimes unsaved people are smarter than Christians. Now, they're not smart about the most important thing, but in a lot of other things, they are. And sadly, they are. And in this case, he's just simply saying, when it comes to your possessions, you ought to look at them with the idea of what can I use it for, for future good eternal good. And so that's what that parable was about. The present context, uh, as we have there in the notes, is just simply this. You look at verse number 14, after Jesus had told this whole parable, gave the challenge, use your possessions wisely, uh, give them away even if you have to for eternal good. Verse 14, the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him. 
okay? And understand that word derided is they mocked him. They were making jokes over this. They're snickering to one another. They can't believe he's telling the story. It's completely insane to them that you would think about giving your possessions away. You go, why would they think that way? Well, the the notes there, the Pharisees mocked uh, Jesus' teaching about possessions. They had come to the conclusion that riches were God's sign. Okay, the blank there, God's sign. He was pleased with an individual. For them, riches were the goal of obeying God. To the Pharisees, riches indicated a right standing before God. And you go, okay, what kind of war personality comes to that conclusion? Well, they were going to Deuteronomy chapter 28 where it talked about the blessings and cursings. If you obey God's word, he'll give you blessing in the land. If you disobey God, you're going to have all sorts of bad things happen to you. So in their mind, you obeyed God in order to get possessions. But they missed that it wasn't the fact that you obey God to get possessions. No, you love God and do what he says. And, oh, by the way, God's going to be gracious to you, but that's not why you serve him. Deuteronomy says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy mind, and all thy strength. And you go, well, what's that? That's the great call made before every synagogue service. It's known as the Shema, uh, this prayer that is given that you do this and then you have the Lord your God is one. Okay, you serve him. There's no other gods. There's no other idols. There's nothing else. You serve him. You love him. And then you get to the end of Deuteronomy and God says, listen, there'll be some blessings if you do this, but that's not why you serve him the Pharisees are serving God because they go, it's going to get me something. I mean, they, they are thinking wealth and health and prosperity gospel here. And uh, they're thinking that way. Now, Jesus responded when they start uh, laughing and mocking him with a statement that God knows the true to get condition of an individual's heart. Look at verse number 15. Okay, they're laughing at him, making a joke. Verse 15, he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it, and it is easier for her heaven and earth to pass away than one tittle of the law to fail." Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. Whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Well, you go through all this and you kind of go, well, what's, you know, it sounds like he kind of at the end veers off. Well, he's just simply stating, God knows your heart. And you may think that you're impressive on the outside, but God knows there's nothing there. There's no relationship with God. He knows that. And it's been proven because they've had the law and the prophets until John. All of a sudden, Jesus and John burst on the scene and the kingdom is being preached that it's near, it's here, okay? If for their taking, if they accept the Savior uh, and they're not willing to do that. But it doesn't really matter because what is said there is not going to, every part of it's going to be fulfilled. Even the smallest part of a letter, that's what a tittle is, is you have this little point. It's like... Um, 
if you look at the letter N and you have you know, the, the hump that's there, but then this little point on the, the one side, that little point on the end would be like that in the Hebrew language. And he's just simply saying, everything is going to be okay in the language there. Everything in the Bible is going to be fulfilled and it's going to happen and every part of it's worth paying attention to. That's the issue. They're not paying attention to everything the scripture says. They're ignoring parts of it and you can see it by the fact of the way they live their life. I mean, that's why all the end is suddenly talking about divorce and adultery and all this stuff, and you're going, why is that thrown in there? Well, the, the Pharisees had come up with rules that uh, they could uh, do this all the time. They could divorce their wife on a whim. You know, you burnt the toast. Okay, that's a divorce. And it was okay with the Pharisees' laws that they had come up with for themselves, and the Lord goes, look, you've got sin. It's obvious you don't really love God because you don't love those around you. So in the notes here, you have the Pharisees heard the teaching of the kingdom, which this is the new stuff that Jesus is teaching, but their lives continue to display that they were not right with God, they did not live right towards others, and that's where all of a sudden we enter into this story. Now, before we we get any further, I do want to talk about this detail under the earthly contrast, and this is where we just need to think for a little bit here. Jesus proceeds to tell a story. Some categorize this story of rich man and Lazarus as a parable. And I don't like to categorize it as a parable because every time Jesus tells a parable, it's a fictional story. Okay, it's a story where there's details made up that everybody in life would be familiar with, but it's a, a story that the Lord has made up, and uh, he is uh, doing this. And a, the idea of a parable is telling a, a truth and then casting a story alongside. That's what it means. The, the, the parable just literally means to cast alongside. And so you're casting the story alongside the truth. And what I'm seeing here is that this story is not fiction. Um, I don't feel like Jesus is casting a truth alongside something. He's actually telling the truth in the story. This is the truth. But in your notes, you see this statement. Jesus proceeded to tell a story. Some categorize this as a parable because it communicates a truth. However, the story contains several elements that indicate that it may be a true story. First one. First one of the characters is named we're going to go through more parables yet, okay? Um, I'm, I'm looking at this, and I think we've got something like 36, 37 parables we're going to go through, and we're like on 21. I, I may be wrong on my numbering there. Not a single character's got a name. You know, it's certain unjust steward, unjust judge, the persistent widow, a Pharisee, a tax collector, uh, a vineyard uh, keeper. I mean, all of these, but there's never a name given. This one, there's a name given which to me indicates that he's being so specific as to give a name to somebody that this isn't a fictional story. This is actually nonfiction. This is a real story. Um, and so it, it's a unusual it's in comparison to everything else. Um, second, I would say this. The elements of hell are not fiction but real. Okay? The danger of saying this is a parable, people will go, oh, this isn't really an account of hell. 
You go everywhere else where Jesus is talking about hell and eventually the lake of fire, and we'll talk about the, the difference here in a second. These are all the elements that are part of it. I, I, I you know, so you go into this and you go, okay, I, I don't, you know, I struggle with this being a, a fictional story. It, it, it's a parable like story, but it's a story. It's real. That last paragraph is this, and I, I'm going to give you something to consider because I, I think this is, you know, I feel pretty strongly about this. But I may get to heaven and find out differently, so I'm just telling you this. The reason for the name of Lazarus being given and not the rich man's could be that the Pharisees knew Lazarus and the rich man. And you have this, the rich man was left unnamed because these men would have known this fellow rich man. They don't have to say the name. Jesus, Jesus could be accused by them, but they're suddenly aware, you know, he talks about this Lazarus and they're kind of going, okay, and they're like, oh, you know, I think he's talking about so-and-so. You know, somebody we envied. And there's going to be features here that they would have envied that you're going to see that the rich man has, that they would envy and say, that, that's the ideal man. Look at what he's got. And so I am of the opinion, because he's talking, he's been talking about these Pharisees who love riches, they love wealth, they love feasts, they love all of these things, and it's kind of bringing us to this point where he's going to tell a story, a real story, about a rich man and Lazarus, and when some of these people hear the name Lazarus, they might go, wait a second, I think I, I, think I know who he's talking about, and, you know, and ultimately they're going, that man's in hell? So, something to think about. I mean, this is why, you know, the Lord, in, you know, he can't be falsely accused and take to court because he's named somebody and said he's in hell. But as they're listening to this, they're going to be thinking, is he, he, I think he's talking about so-and-so. So, that's uh, why I'm, you know, talked to, uh, ta- thought through and have actually brought it up to different individuals. And they're just like, yeah, that's, you know, this is really an unusual thing. It's not a, it's not a parable, so okay, you know, how do you deal with it? But we're going to treat it in our parables because it is always kind of in any book on parables, but I treat it more as not a non-fictional story. It is, it's real, it's true. Now let's just read through the story. It starts the, in verse number 19. It says this, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Changeover, verse 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by angels into Abram's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he's comforted, and thou art tormented. 
Besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. See in the back page there, the contrasts were dramatic. And we're in the earthly context here before we get to the eternal context. The rich man owned purple clothing that would have come from the expensive process of production from mollusks. This is a, a dye process where you would have to collect thousands upon thousands upon thousands uh, of uh, mollusks to get a little bit of purple dye that you could then put in a mixture to eventually be able to dye a cloth. Um, this is the garment, what you have here when you read that, you ought to understand this. This is the garment of kings and, um, yeah, senators in Rome. Now, most people couldn't even imagine ever touching cloth like this, let alone wearing cloth like this. They're never going to see it. Um, you know, we have cloth like that in our culture. I remember... Um, Tammy's mom, grandma, uh, talking to her. She worked for Disney World and worked in the uh, Small World exhibit there, sewing all the costumes in that. And she said, there were occasions where we would have material that would come in and it would be $1,500 a square foot. She goes, we measured three, four, five times before we made a single cut on any of that material. Um... You know, that's the type of thing we're talking about. Rare material that you, no one really gets to wear except people who are impressive. This man is impressive that he can wear that kind of clothing. And uh, you have uh, this statement, he had a feast every day. The, the Pharisees back in chapter 14 are you know, talking about, okay, I have a friend that invites me to a feast, and we kind of go to that, and then eventually I'll invite him to a feast at my house and that type of thing. And uh, they would do this back and forth, and to, the way that you impress people is that you had a feast. This man has a feast every day. He's inviting people all the time, every day. Not once a year, come to my grand uh, party uh, and be a part of this. No, every day. He's having a feast. People come to his place because he's got the money and the ability to show off, and it is a uh, large feast. We might say feast fit for a king. So when we hear that, that's where this man's status is at. But then you're contrasted on the other side. The poor man did not have any human guests at his feast. But scavenging dogs were his friends. Now, for us, it's kind of hard to imagine this, but dogs uh, in the Oriental culture were not necessarily pets. Uh, even today in Middle Eastern culture and that region, they don't understand at times why 
Americans love to have dogs as pets. I mean, they see them as guard, you know, you, you, they, they, they're, they're frightening and they, you know, if you train them properly, they can frighten people off, but they really don't see, you know, you're going to have them as pets, you know, in your house and let them lay around on you and whatever. I mean, they, they don't understand that. And so here you've got a man who has a creature that wouldn't normally be with people, but it's his only companions. And for him, as you look at what's going on here, he would love to have food, but in the end, only the dogs have something to lick. And that's his source. I mean, I had to be reminded of this. I had, you know, you always talk about we get the scraps off the rich person's table. You know, you, you use this in culture. It doesn't say he gets anything. It just simply says he desires to have scraps in the rich man's table. You know, it's not that they come out and they, you know, scrap stuff into the, the trash can and he's, you know, getting this out of the, the, the trash can in the back. No, he's desiring that he could just have a scrap from that table and he's got nothing. I mean, he's totally, totally without anything going on. So you have this about him. And then to top it off, he was a sick man who had to be carried wherever he went. And even in the stories, you read it when he is put there by the rich man's house. It's not just merely that he's laid there. It's almost as if he's cast there. It's a term for like throwing something. That's, that's how he's, he's put up there outside the gate. Uh, and so he's a sick man. Can't move, got sores. As you read this, the Pharisees would commend the rich man Look at where he's at. He is, he is on king level. He must really have impressed God. That's where we would love to be at if we could live life like that. He's always able to invite friends. However, Lazarus on the other side, according to their theology, would not have been pleasing to God. In their mind, his sickness and his poverty indicated disfavor with God. That's the blank that's there. Disfavor with God. That God hadn't favored him. God didn't like him. That's why he's sick. That's why he's poor. So obviously he's got nothing to impress God uh, with. And so you know what? He's, he's, he's the first candidate for not making it to heaven. That's the assumption. And you go, well, you know, people didn't think like that. The disciples thought this way. John 9 they go by a blind man and go, was this man born, or born blind because of a sin of himself or his parents? And the Lord says, no, this happened so as to bring glory to God uh, that this event took place, not because someone had sinned. So even regular people in society thought this way, that health and wealth was an indicator that God liked you, and if you were on the other side of the spectrum, oh well, you know, you're in divine disfavor somehow. So the Pharisees reading the story or hearing the story initially would be like, you know, good for this guy. I wish I could be like him. But then you have that contrast which suddenly goes, you don't want to be like him because it's going to be totally flipped on its head because you have these eternal contrasts because what you have after all of this, it's not going to be changed from here on out for eternity. 
So the changeover, it's a temporary thing here, the riches and the poorness, but then you go to something that's completely eternal and it's never going to change as far as what happens. You read the story, Lazarus died, and he finally has friends. You go, he's escorted by the angels into, uh, the, into Abraham's bosom, the Abraham's side. Now, in your notes there, uh, I have this, that uh, it was a Jewish idiom for heaven. They, they use this to describe heaven, because who's going to be in heaven? Obviously, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I mean, they're thinking that when the kingdom's set up, these people are going to be feasting there, and you're going to be feasting along with them if you're a Jew. And so for them, this is heaven, this is the, the place where they are at right now, and this is the glorious place to be. So for Lazarus to be there by the side of Abraham, he's enjoying all the blessings of heaven. And he's escorted into the presence of God by the strongest and greatest creatures uh, created beings in the universe. You think about this, the most powerful individuals, and they're stronger than we are. Uh, we're just made a little higher than they are because we're the ones that are supposed to have dominion over the earth and we've got, been given the image of God. Uh, so we are, have a different position than they do. But as far as power, might, um, these are now the people that are taking him into the presence of Abraham to be there with him. The only other thing that we have about Lazarus' condition, it doesn't say much about Lazarus. I mean, you know this. He doesn't say much about Lazarus. He goes in the presence of Abraham, and all the rest of the other thing it says about him is he's, that he is now comforted. He has comfort. That's it. It doesn't say anything else about Lazarus' condition. However, we're given much about the rich man's condition. It's a very stark statement when it says that he died and was buried. Um, from a human standpoint, I'm guessing the funeral was really large. It took place on the very day a person died, and he had lots of people escorting his body to the grave, but the scripture doesn't mention that. It just simply says, he died and was buried, and when he, what? Immediately found himself in hell in torments. He doesn't care what's going on on earth anymore. He doesn't care there's been a grand parade made for him and who he was and, and all of that. No, he, he's immediately in hell in torment. And understand this, when it says they're in torment, it's actually torments. It's in plural. I mean, it's not just one thing tormenting him. It's everything is tormenting him. Now, his desire, as you read this, is like Lazarus is on earth. It was for a small thing. Lazarus in, in earthly life just wanted to scrap off the table. That's all he wanted. Didn't get it. Well, this man's now desiring, could I just have simply a drop of water? That's all I'm asking for, just a drop, not you know, a whole bucket, a whole gallon, whatever. I just want a drop of, of water uh, if Lazarus could come and do that for me. So suddenly you have another contrast. Lazarus is now comforted. He's enjoying the blessings of being in the presence of God. And now you have this man who would just simply like a drop of water never to get one again for eternity. However, Abraham made clear that it's impossible to give any relief due to a great gulf that's fixed between them. Now, 
you know, what's this golf like? You know, is, is you know, hell in one spot, and then they look across and they see heaven. I, I, I have no idea, you know, what exactly is being described here, other than the fact of understand this. <clears throat> if we were to find what death is, death is a separation. Okay, when I will eventually die, unless the Lord comes back, my body will separate from my soul and spirit. My soul and spirit will go to the presence of God, and I'll be here. And it'll be called death, because there's been a separation of two things that are connected. But as you read the scripture, you find there's a thing called spiritual death. And you go, what's that? When a person sins against God and puts a distance between them and God, and it's called spiritual death, that's a distance, a separation between you and your God that can only be fixed by Jesus Christ. And then in the end of time, what you have is that there is going to be what is defined as a second death. A Revelation chapter 20 talks about this. And what happens at the second death, and, and you read the account here, that death and hell give up their dead to stand before God. And you go, okay, what does that mean? Well, it's just simply this. All the people who are dead are raised there's a second resurrection. The first resurrection you want to be a part of, but there's a second resurrection where these people's bodies are joined with their soul and spirit, and they've been in hell all this time. And it stands before God, and they're looking for a place to escape, but there is no place to escape. And in the end, when the records are read, they're not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, their works are accounted for, they're found to be a sinner, and you find this statement, depart from me, work of iniquity, I never knew you, and they are cast into the lake of fire. Now, I do need to make this statement here now, it's probably a good time to do it. Hell and the lake of fire are two different places. Okay, there's a word that Jesus uses quite often, he talks about hell, it's the word Hades, um, as we know it, it's talking about the present location of those who have died in their sins. Their soul and spirit is in Hades. When the great white throne judgment happens, Hades is emptied for those individuals to stand before God, and they go eventually to a lake of fire, or it's also known as the, the, the everlasting fire, or the fire of Gehenna. Okay, that's the Hebrew or the, the Greek and Hebrew word behind it, Gehenna. That's the final destination for these individuals. You compare hell to this, that it's like a holding cell before a person goes to sentencing and then goes to the penitentiary. Okay, that's the difference. Jail's no fun, but neither is the penitentiary. Well, at least it should be. Uh, and our culture's not quite like that. But neither one of them are good. And is it any reprieve to be in front of the judge? No, not really, when you're guilty and he's about to sentence you and give you all sorts of things. So it is that individuals right now that have died in their sins, separated from God, their soul and spirit's in hell, one day their body will be resurrected to meet them, stand before God, and then be cast into the lake of fire. That's the distinguishing thing here. So when Jesus is talking about the lake of fire in Gehenna, he's talking about the eternal fire. Uh, that goes on forever and ever after Hades is emptied out. So I give you that. But anyhow, so you have hell and this great gulf that's fixed and you go, well, why is it fixed? Because there's a separation between, between sinners and God. And in this case, they're separated from God's mercy, love, and kindness, and uh, forever and ever. And so there's no way for anything to come across that can help them. 
nor for them to somehow earn their way or by ability get over to the other side. Okay, there's no such thing. This, this thing here uh, explains the fact, a way of purgatory. Okay? There's no hope for this man. It's very clear here. There's some that think, well, maybe there's a second chance, and you have to remind yourself, Hebrews 9 is very clear. It's appointed and a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. There is no hope after it. There's not a second chance to work your way out of this, that someone's going to come out of hell and stand before God at the great white throne judgment, and suddenly God's going to go, ooh, oh, sorry, found your name in the book of life. You know, good job. You know, the, the, the grace of Jesus Christ's death on the cross does not extend to people who are in hell. They cannot get out and get to heaven because Jesus is the only way and that grace ends when they die. So for this man, great goal fixed, okay? Hell is a place of torment as you find that second to last paragraph. The rich man didn't want others to come, especially his five brothers. I mean, this goes against the whole idea in our society that I'm going to go to hell to party with my friends. Um, hell is a place of loneliness. You go, how do you know that? Because Christ died alone on the cross in darkness. He died and suffered uh, being abandoned by God so that we would never have to be that way. Uh, you're not talking to people in hell. You're not having conferences with other people. You're, you're alone in your suffering in hell. And this man is in his communication, you know, how this is possible, but this communication, he's saying, I got five brothers. I don't want them to come here. So send Lazarus back so that he can warn them. And Abraham is almost, it's kind of callous, almost in some ways you feel like that he's saying this, but it's the thing that saves anyhow. Abraham indicated that they had everything they needed in Moses and the prophets. They needed to hear them. I mean, the man goes, please send somebody back. He goes, they've got Moses and the prophets. Now, think about this. Rich man, his friends, these are going to be Pharisees that have a good portion of Moses' stuff memorized. And all the commentaries that they had, they had memorized. Uh, they, they should have, but the statement is, it's not just merely that they haven't memorized, they ought to hear it. And the idea of hearing is they're not just merely getting the ears, it's responding. And they aren't responding to the things that they have right before them, in their, their memory banks. They're not responding to it because they're not really hearing it and responding to it. The man then says this, the rich man was convinced that if somebody went back, they could move the people to repent. I mean, that's what he's thinking. Verse 30, that if you could get them, someone to go back, especially someone who's come back from the dead. I don't know if he's thinking, you know, Lazarus come back from the dead or somebody from hell to report to these people, please don't go here, whatever the case is. I don't know. But he's thinking, if you have somebody come back from the dead and report what's beyond and tell people that this is the case and be earnest about it, that people will repent. And the whole point is this very last statement because it's going to be the statement of Abraham is prophetic. Because he says this in verse 31, again, let's read it. It says this, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. 
though one rose from the dead. Well, you get to later on in the book of Luke, one did rise from the dead. And the Pharisees aren't persuaded. Who are the major enemies of the, the church in the book of Acts? Roman government to start off with? Mm-mm. Not Roman government. It's the Judaizers, these Pharisees who are saying, come back to the old faith of works, or excuse me, the old religion of works, uh, and come back to that. They're the ones pursuing them. The chief individual, a guy by the name of Saul in Acts chapter 8, 7 and 8, uh, who's pursuing them, uh, he's a Pharisee, trained at the best of Pharisees, a man by the name of Gamaliel, who is an individual who runs in government circles. He's got some influence and power. He's a rich man. Um, these Pharisees had someone rise from the dead. They didn't believe it. I mean, Abraham's correct. They wouldn't believe if someone rose from the dead. I mean, the Pharisees did not listen to the prophecies pointing to Jesus. I mean, you, you read through Deuteronomy chapter 18, and, and Moses says, there's a prophet coming after me who everything he says is going to be right. You need to hear him. I mean, he's pointing to Jesus the Messiah in that statement. You hear him. He's going to be coming. And even in Jesus' time, they're coming and going, are you that prophet? And whenever he's asked that question, he's answering with a statement that confirms the fact that he's that prophet, but they aren't going to listen to that. They won't hear it. And so you get done with this, and it's, I mean, that's it. I mean, that, that's the story. He doesn't give a concluding statement. He just kind of gets done with it, and it's something for these Pharisees to just kind of mull over, because if they think, wait a second, rich man, he's in hell, This is a whole paradigm shift for them. Who wants to go to a place like that? And it was a sober reality. Now, I remember hearing this statement from Bob Jones III, and uh, you've heard this perhaps, that he said this, but he made the statement, the most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. And you read something like this and you just kind of go, I wouldn't want to go there. And I really wouldn't want anybody else going there. And you've got a guy and it seems like this is the first conversation he has within the first five to ten minutes that he has there in hell. And he's saying, no one wants to come here. And you think about it, this man in this story has been there at least 2,000 years. And that's just the start. So it's sobering, but it was designed to sober up individuals who thought that they had pleased God because they were so impressive with their riches and the like in this life. And, you know, riches aren't going to gain you anything in eternity. Good health, not going to gain you anything in eternity. But if you hear Moses and the prophets... You hear what the kingdom of God is being preached and you respond to that in faith. That's all you need. Much like Lazarus. I, I, I've always wondered, I wish there was a rest of the story. I would love to hear how Lazarus heard about some of these things that he put his saving faith in. What, what he heard being an outcast in society. 
and how he heard it. Um, but we're not told those details. But he is obviously one who has faith because no one gets to heaven on their works or who they are. Uh, it's on the merits of somebody else. So, Any questions, thoughts? I mean, we had some good questions this morning, but uh, anything on this? Cheryl? Was this a unique circumstance that allowed someone in hell to view into heaven? Yeah, that would be a detail. And seeing that we don't know how this is set up, I mean, how is Hades right now set up in relation to heaven? Don't know. You know, we're, we're talking about stuff that is just, you know, you know, we talk about the fourth dimension. Yeah, we're talking about another dimension that we aren't a part of right now. One day we'll see it clearly because we'll be able to be uh, able to see things rather by, by faith, or excuse me, by sight rather than by faith. But yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly if this was a unique thing. I don't know, but it happens. Man's able to communicate, but separated, darkness, but still can't communicate. I, I don't know exactly how. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, with the way the Pharisees are always looking for something to try and kill Jesus on. I tend to think that Jesus didn't say this name because of the fact that, yeah, they would have been like, oh, you know, you don't know him, whatever, you know, you blasphemed his name, uh, you know, and so this gives him a, an escape not to say the guy's name. But I think they all knew. I think they all knew. Yes? There is some made reference to the fact that in commentaries there are differences of opinion on whether this is a true story or yeah. or yeah. what do you th- what do you think is the difference of, between one opinion and the other what's the material what material is different about that why would it matter Well, if it's fictional or not, you know, there's a true story. I kind of go with the fact that, you know, some of these people are going, when they talk about it, they're kind of going, it's a fictionalized story. It does give us some of the realities of hell, but not all of them. I, I kind of go with the fact that the Savior, when he talked, he talked more about hell than he did heaven. And for him to kind of come to this and go, this is a fictional story, then you're like, well, okay, you know, it's just designed to horrify us. And it's like, hmm, yeah, it is designed to horrify us in the sense of reality, but I have a hard time coming to the conclusion that Jesus in this account would be making up something fictionalized mm-hmm. when it's in such detail. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some specific details, and it's just kind of like, okay. Oh. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's varied, but I just, I, I, I can't get past the point that we have all the parables and nobody's ever named in it except this one. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I think the Lord was really trying to shake the Pharisees at this point. And um, 
you know, give them one final call before he's, they, I mean, after this point is when you start getting Jesus getting close to Jerusalem, they're raging to have him killed, you know, whatever, and they're going to carry out their plans for it. So I, I think it's, in my, you know, just looking at it, it's really the Lord's last attempt to kind of shake them. It doesn't strike me that, it, that one's opinion on that changes mm-hmm. what we know or should do. Yeah. Either way. It doesn't. So, yeah.